First, you were frightened by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Then you were terrorized by Halloween. And now, prepare to be pulverized, traumatized, and hospitalized by Splatter U. More horrifying than you could possibly imagine. Unlike anything you've ever seen. Hey guys, let's party! And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. With a name like Splatter University, how could you possibly go wrong? Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. Is this idiocy? In Virginia, use the molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! Uh, I choose not disintegration. So be it. In one month, I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready, or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to this? Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment! Virginia, summon the subject! Virginia, I know that this is supposed to take place in a Catholic school, but you don't have to dress up like a nun. And, and, and put that knife crucifix away. You're going to scare I, the, the subject. I, I, uh, yeah, I have issues with nuns. <laughs> Volumes with nuns. Mm. Of which there were surprisingly uh, none, I think. I don't remember seeing any. Nuns. Yeah, none nuns. 
right. So, you've heard that you've you've watched the movie, Chris? Yeah, and you know, this whole experiment—it's been going so good, and and I've been thinking this isn't so bad. I've been liking all these movies, and now is this where it turns? <laughs> Is this where the experiment turns and... Sometimes you get Thriller or Cruel Picture, and sometimes you get Splatter University. <laughs> it's two different kinds of torture, that's for sure. Oh, uh, as, as you know, I, I brought in a special guest who's going to join us for the Summer of Slime. Uh, the great author and filmmaker who pre presently his present film is still i think still available on amazon correct it is free on prime free on prime johnny gruesome which i reviewed on the domicile of dread very favorably and next year he has a new film that's been getting a lot of buzz called widow's point starring craig sheffer let us please welcome mr greg lamberson well, I'm happy that June 1st is uh, the beginning of the summer of slime and not the summer of splatter. Oh, I asked Greg to suggest a film for us, Honeywell. And, oh. And he told me that he remembered watching this in a actual grindhouse on 42nd Street. So you're throwing him under the bus. Okay. <laughs> well, let me say, I, I never in my life thought that I would be on the end of possibly defending this particular film. Okay. <laughs> I do have a long history of it, though, and uh, it played a, quite a big role in my development. Okay. Uh, the, the theater I saw it in was actually the Criterion on mm -hmm. Broadway and 43rd, where I saw so many great horror films because I worked in uh, Times Square. Mm -hmm. I worked at King Carroll Records in the video department, and I worked at the RKO National Twin. They were side by side. I spent four years on that block. But, uh, you know, I'm speaking to you now from Buffalo, New York, mm -hmm. which is an hour north of the town I grew up in, a small town called Fredonia, a little college town. Mm -hmm. And in 1982, I moved to New York City to study film at the uh, School of Visual Arts. Mm -hmm. And my very first job, one of many at movie theaters, was at Cinema One on 3rd Avenue and 59th Street. Now it's Cinema One, Two, 3rd Avenue. And on my very first night working behind the concession stand of this theater, I was trained in the ways of making popcorn by a young woman named Alice Martin. And some of the other staff members at the theater uh, kept teasing her about a movie she had appeared in called Splatter U, which was the alternate title for Splatter University. And I was so excited. Coming from a small town, she was the very first person I ever spoke to who had worked on a horror film. And they were saying, like, oh, that thing's never going to be done. It'll never get out. I could tell she was kind of embarrassed about it. And mm -hmm. uh, I spent our one evening together learning as much as I could about the, the film. Right. Cut to, cut to maybe a year later when I'm working at the RKO National Twin and loving the sights and sound of Times Square and 42nd Street. And uh, I saw that the film was playing at the Criterion. And I don't know if you remember, but back then, especially on Broadway, they had these telephone booth contraptions mm -hmm. that had video uh, VHS machines inside, and it would just play the trailers over, over and, and over and over again, yeah. 
So that's the way I would see what was new, because we didn't have trailers on the web. So I would just walk up and down Broadway and see what was playing these. And it was a very fun experience uh, standing with the 42nd Street audience that would huddle around these things and laugh or, or boo or whatever. And I ended up seeing the movie, and uh, you know we'll discuss its qualities shortly. But then cut to, I don't know, six months or a year later, and uh, I was a manager at that point of the National, and my ticket taker had also been a ticket taker at the Baronet and Coronet, which was right next door to Cinema One. And all of the people that I know who were involved with this film either worked at Cinema One or the Baronet and Coronet. It's this weird nexus for Splatter University. And uh, this ticket taker said, oh, uh, Gregory, I'd like you to meet uh, John Michaels, a friend of mine. Uh, can, can he come see the movie for free? I said, sure. He said, uh, he's a great filmmaker. Said, oh, what have you worked on? Well, I was the uh, co-writer, associate producer, first assistant director on Splatter University. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I saw that, of which, you know, Anytime you tell an independent filmmaker you've seen their film, especially if you've paid to see it in a movie theater, it just lights up. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing another one this summer. All right, tell me about it. It's, it's called I Was a Teenage Zombie. I'm going to direct this one. And this is my first conversation with this man ever. I said, I have to be involved. Well, we're, we can't pay anybody. It's okay. Well, you're going to have to work every day straight for a month. It's all right. I'll quit my job. I'll work for free. I've got to do this. And I leapt at it, and that's basically how I got into filmmaking. You know, I studied for it, but I had no avenues of entry. And just because I saw this movie Splatter University, because I had met this woman who had worked on the film, I had an end to working on my first film. And I worked on I Was a Teenage Zombie and then went right from that into Slime City. Mm-hmm. And made many friends on I Was a Teenage Zombie who had worked on Splatter U. So I heard all sorts of stories about it. I I just want to say, before we even get into the movie, how lucky you were to be able to be there at, at, in Times Square at probably like sort of the last chance, you know, to work in a grindhouse theater and and sort of be there around that. It was an amazing experience. That particular theater was very classy. We had a thousand seat theater and a five hundred seat theater, and all the big movies came mm-hmm. in premieres. It was across the street from the Lowe's Aster, but it was right next door to all those other film theaters. You know, I went to the embassies, I went to the Criterion. Um, there was a quad around the corner. There was the RKO Warner. There were just so many theaters, and there was always something trashy playing. And I had nights when I left my jobs um, where I would go to Forty Second Street and watch like a triple feature of women in prison films or something like this. And I did it sort of as a, a test of courage to go into these theaters alone at night. <laughs> We've got smoking angel dust in the back and, you know, the theater cat would inevitably rub against your leg and you'd be paranoid. It was a rat. And <laughs> yeah, I really miss uh, Times square. And in my, the third film I did naked fear, which was this real low budget shot on high eight thing. Um, it was shot at the time that all the theaters were boarded up. Mm-hmm. And I shot a sequence of the main character, who was actually Robert Sabin, the star of Slime City, walking down 42nd Street, passing all those. And we got to have a montage of all the, the marquees and the sayings that the theaters put up, you know, as they were departing. So but my little film is sort of a record of that weird transition period before everything changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I, I went to film school here in Rochester at RIT 
probably like three or four years later than you. And my first girlfriend was from Brooklyn. And uh, the, the and so we went home to see her parents. And the first thing I said is, I'd like to go to Times Square. And she's like, you're not going to like it. And it was like I got there right as it was freshly Disneyfied. Yeah. And that was the first time I got to walk into Times Square, and I was so sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a shame. It really is. And it's just as sleazy now, just in a different way. Right, right. But, but it's now also a gift same kind of see All the charm. Frank Hennenlotter uh, once told me, you know, he grew up on, I, I don't know if he was Long Island or Staten Island, but he would play hooky from school and go into the city and go right to 42nd Street and watch movies all day. I mean, it, it, that was the kind of place it was. So my favorite uh, theater did not have a name. It was, it was right off the um, entrance to the 42nd Street station on 7th Avenue. And it just had this sign that said, three Kung Fu hits all day. <laughs> right next to Playland, I assume. I, I'm trying to th- remember. Where, see, I, th- I think it's now next to the, where the McDonald's is now it, yeah. at that gift shop that is now 42nd Street. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. No, but it ensu- that's where I saw my first Andy Sidoris film. <laughs> <laughs> I saw The Thing on 42nd Street. That's where I saw it the first time, on a double feature with Treasure of the Four Crowns in 3D. Oh, God. And boy, did that theater reek a piss. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> like, you, you kind of didn't want to get up from your chair because you didn't want to hear, like, the sounds that might come from the fabric of your, your right. jeep sticking to the seat. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Splatter University. <laughs> Shot at Mercy College in Dobbs Ferries, New York, which is why there are some scenes where there are duct tape hiding the symbol, I assume. Yeah, that there's a term for that. Uh, when you use tape to hide a logo or something, you call it greeking it. I don't know why, but that's the term. <laughs> um, I will give I will give this film some credit. Forbes Riley is really good, and God bless her, she's still working today. Um, a lot of the other actors, not so much. <laughs> My favorite actor in the whole movie was, at the beginning, the, the guy in the insane asylum who was cradling the head. <laughs> that was some prime acting right there. Not to be confused with a guy in the insane asylum who exits a room, picks his nose, and eats his booger. That's yeah. that's the lever and level of uh, social again. commentary. She shows up twice <laughs> after that. He, he, he's in another scene being escorted by one of the nurses, and he has a stick with him. And he is one of my favorite characters in the movie, the guy who steals drinks from her. <laughs> Oh yeah, he's the 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 John Belushi type college kid stand in in that movie. During the, I guess that counts as a party. Wait, which guy is this? Uh, this is the the, the guy. You said that the the mental patient picks his nose. Right, right. He shows up again twice. Uh, uh, hmm. Well, he's, he he's got like a beard and a sort of hippie afro, and he's he's dancing in the diner. I have the feeling that may be a guy named Jim Gribb, who was uh, 
um, a gaffer on some of these low-budget films at the time. I, I met him once for Teenage Zombie. He was quite a crazy character. He looks like a gaffer. <laughs> um, well, a lot of the people that I knew working in crew positions were crew members of this film, but also played actors. Okay. Um, George George Seminara plays, I, I guess, the funniest of the guys. He's the the chubby preppy kid who's cheating on his girlfriend and and selling pot the, the most heroic mullet ever <laughs> um george uh, was also when i was a teenage zombie and he had a very successful career directing ramones music videos documenting the ramones and he's an emmy winning tv producer he's a very funny guy and he ad-libbed a lot of this stuff part of the history of this film is that uh Richard Haynes, the director, was the post-production supervisor over Troma. He had worked as an editor for Mother's Day, and Charlie Kaufman told his brother Lloyd, uh, your films suck in terms of editing and stuff. I'm going to send you this guy, put him to work. So for many years, he was the post-production supervisor. And uh-huh. John Michaels, the other guy uh, that I mentioned who went on to direct Teenage Zombie, uh, I believe cut trailers of Troma. So they're, they're total Troma heads. But when they first shot the movie, it was only an hour long. So they had to go back. You know, it takes so long to get to a cut of a film. It can take a year. So they had to go back way after the fact to shoot another 13 to 15 minutes. And I may be wrong, but I believe there was a falling out between the director, Richard Haynes, and the first AD, John Michaels, during that time. And it was John Michaels, the AD, who shot the additional footage. So you may notice that the same kids keep popping up, but they have drastically different hair lengths and hairstyles. That's why that's because of the difference. So I would guess that most of the scenes that the teacher of the kids that the teacher is not in are the scenes that were in the reshoot. John Michaels, just to place him in the film is the guy who climbs through the window with a stocking over his head and says, let's party. (laughs) But after, after somebody dies, yeah, that's the kind of joke I like. Well, the pacing, when you do that, when you add footage like that, you throw the pacing of the film way off. So who knows what it was really like before they added all that stuff. Well, uh, you, you can't go wrong because every student in that in that movie was just a complete sociopath. Nobody was really too concerned about anybody getting killed off. And that's why I say it's a, it's a mean, it's an ugly film. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I mean, as is kind of typical, you, you let these guys fresh out of college – shoot their own scenes, you know, that the original creator wasn't involved in, and every other word that comes out of their mouth is fuck. Fuck, 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 fuck. Or uh, 10 million jokes about women being on the rag, you know. So, I mean, certainly not PC at all. Yeah. I actually have a note about that. (laughs) Yeah, the Um, the obsession with menstruation really jumped out at me. (laughs) George, though, was a very funny guy, and he does have what I think is a pretty, pretty funny line, which is when he's with a girl and she asks... If uh, if he's got protection, he says, "Oh, you mean a prophylactolator? I, uh, I I put it on uh, as soon as you called me an hour ago. I, I thought that was a pretty funny moment. I laugh. I've laughed at. I've seen the film three or four times in my life, but I laugh every time at that. Perhaps my my, my favorite kind of like cringeworthy laugh is mid after the, the after the drive-in. When is it? Alice is her name. Yes. When she gets she gets slaughtered. And they're on the campus grounds, and two guys, one of them I'm pretty sure is Wolf, is going, Oh, did you hear there was a a murder at the drive-in? 
And the other one goes, yeah, what was playing? Yeah. <laughs> um, these, are, these are some nasty-ass students. Yeah, well, so they are. And, and when I was watching it, I was like, this is, you know, this is what and 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 a, a lot of it could have to do with watching this in 2019 for the first sure, time sure is uh but you know this this is sort of i i was thinking they were sort of going for a tone between like um a horror a slasher movie and a the slightly more comedic version of like fast times at ridgemont high or something so it was supposed yeah. to be an animal house so it's supposed to be sort of a comedy horror movie but the comedy is just <laughs> pretty sociopathic and nasty <laughs> to, put it, it to put it in a, a context though there really weren't a lot of goofy horror films yet when this film right. had been made i don't want to accuse it of breaking new ground but i don't think it, it, it had anything to imitate to do it properly, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, the guy who played Wolf, he was also Salamena. in a, was a Salamena. He was also in a, I Was a Teenage Zombie, and he was a producer on that. And I got to say, uh, he was the nicest guy in the world. He had a very cool demeanor for being on set, very professional, very helpful to those of us who didn't know what, what the hell we were doing. And he always seemed like to me like the one guy on set who knew what he was doing, and I'm surprised he didn't go on to have uh, a career. Uh, like Why George. Is it that that actors who portray like the worst people are usually the nicest guys. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I making comparisons to what the that humor's like. That character Wolf, if you if you tone it way down, to me he's sort of a a Brooklyn. I mean, I don't. There's so many accents in this yeah. film between Brooklyn and Staten Island. Who knows what his accent was? But they remind me of some of the characters that you would have found in the Frankie and Annette Beach Party movies. Only sleazier. I was His about to totally could have been in one of those films. I, I was about to say that th th if they set this film in the 50s, there would really be no change. Other than, of course, that bizarro outfit that... Uh, is she Denise is the character? The one with the, the, the heroic County Contain mullet? Yes, you you bring me to my to my next person that I was going to identify, Denise, uh, the redhead who does has this weird leopard skin and Mickey Mouse combination yeah. outfit. Um, she was also and I was a teenage zombie, and I remember her being on set as an extra uh, when I was on Frank Cannon Lauder's Brain Damage. I was the first assistant director on that, so there was sort of this little sub community. Within the sub-community, right. within the sub-community of the, the, the people making horror films during these two or three years. Um, I believe she's a professional dancer and dance teacher now. It's... She got a lot of appreciation from the crowd standing around the phone booth box showing the trailer. Yeah. Well, she she is something. That's for sure. Um, I don't rem I don't think there's any nudity. If there is, it's it's split second. No, um, I, don't, I don't recall. Anything. I don't think so. Yeah. But there's a lot of uh, the first two murders are really sexualized. The first one is the knife to the crotch. Yeah. I mean, it's not enough to see the knife go in. Of course, you've got to see the knife come out, and then after the guy puts the clothes back on, you see he's wearing pants with a bloody crotch. And then the next one is is the first knife into a boob. 
Yeah. And then I think in a lot of the stuff that the Rishu people did, most of the stabbings are either the throat or the stomach. Mm-hmm. So I'm except I'm for that bizarre one say, where he cuts the one woman's forehead. Yeah. And I'm like sitting there going like, see, I used to be a wrestling fan. Right, right. That that don't do much. It bleeds a lot. That's why you do yeah. cut your forehead. Right. You, if you attack somebody in a car in broad daylight, you probably don't want to just cut their forehead. You want to go for the throat. You don't want them screaming. Uh, yeah, this this also has one of my favorite things about it, about like, and this was, you know, when I was in film school and just every, you know, just about people that age making movies like that. And uh, it where, where they cast fellow 19 year olds in in roles of that are just like, um, what was his name? Father Perkins, the, the, oh, the, the priest who sits in on the class. And I'm like, oh man, they just stuck a mustache on some <laughs> one of their 19 year old friends. That is huh? a director. That's Richard That's Hayes, the director. The director. <laughs> it's funny because I was referring to him because you know I was live tweeting this as I was watching it this time, and I referred to him as Father Greasy. Well, I'm I'm assuming it's it was a the name was a tribute to Anthony Perkins, mm-hmm. and then I was thinking, and then that reminded me he was in that movie that um, Ken Russell movie where he was the priest with the razor right. dildo. Mm-hmm. So. Crimes of Passion. Crimes of Passion, yes. I'd actually like to uh, talk about Mr. Haynes a little bit. Okay. Well, I know one thing. He made a he made a huge profit because he made this film for fifty thousand, and he sold the the video rights to Vestron, I think. Vestron. $150,000. was the place. And remind me of that when we get to Slime City, because they they had made a similar offer to me, which blew up in my face uh, at the last minute. It would have meant an entirely different life for me. Um, but working on I Was a Teenage Zombie, I heard a lot of people talking about Richard Haynes. And and years, decades later now, I can say, well, they had a falling out. So, of course, they're going to say the worst about this guy. I, I have no idea what he's like personally. And I told you guys, I think the film's competently directed. Uh, he has gone on. He's he's done some interesting work. He's done a bunch of other films, and he's written a bunch of novels. So we have very fairly similar careers in that respect. But he's also a bit of a film historian and a film restorationist. And I believe he was involved with one of the restorations of Lawrence of Arabia. Mm-hmm. And he's a columnist for uh, what is it? Film magazine. I think it's called Sight and Sound or Vision. So he has some real chops as far as film history. So I. I I have nothing against the guy, but I did meet him once. After we had finished, I was a teenage zombie. Um, I had quit my job, so I had nothing to do. And when you get the filmmaking bug, you don't really want to let it go. So I saw an ad for free PAs to work on a trauma film. Right. I had just worked on a film where everyone said, don't ever work on a trauma film. It's like, all right, uh, let me give it a shot. So I went out, and uh, I was a PA for one day during pre-production on Class of Newcomb High which at that point I believe was called Atomic High School. And Richard was the director. And uh, they put me to work. I cleaned up the prop room. I, I sat down and wrote letters to people asking for free stuff, you know, product placement. And somebody was asking me what I had done. And I said, oh, I had worked on this, this film. I was a teenage zombie. And I saw this look of, of uh, let's say, alertness in his face face and he ran out of the room and 30 seconds later Richard Haynes strolled into the room 
mm-hmm. proceeded to grill me for half an hour. Uh, was basically concerned, he didn't say this, but this is what I concluded, that I was there undercover to spy on him for his former colleagues who went on to make I Was a Teenage Zombie. And I made my, uh, during this half hour of listening to the talk, I made up my mind, okay, this is it. <laughs> I'm not coming back. <laughs> in the course of the day, two other PAs went out on errands and never came back. And I said, well, I'm going to finish out the day. I'm not going to be a dick, but I'm not coming back. Right. Uh, so that, was, that was my uh, exposure to the man. Okay. Who went on to make a film called, uh, among his other films, called Alien Space Avenger. Yeah, which that was two films after this one. And it was produced by himself and a man named Ray Sundlin, who was the associate producer on Brain Damage. So I, I was exposed to Ray. And he was also involved in this restoration stuff. And Alien Space Avenger, I see there is a good copy of it on YouTube, and I plan to watch it. Uh, but what that film is famous for is um, some company, they shot it in Technicolor. Some company in China handled the Technicolor. Now, if you watch it, you're like, oh, well, they shot it. <laughs> so the film's all washed out. Uh, who can appreciate the Technicolor? But I've always been curious about it. And uh, at one point in Slime City's history, I met with some guys who were going to finance it for three times what we ended up shooting it for. And they were involved with this film, and they showed us some of the footage and stuff. So it's, it's just weird how he and I just sort of cross paths without realizing it during those years. Um, two of the, two of the actors in, in Splatter U though, went on to be in a film called Slime City. Yeah. Dick Beale, who was the wheelchair bound priest. I don't know if we want to go into spoilers. He's the, uh, detective. In- yes. He's, he's the detective in Slime City, and I brought him back for Slime City Massacre because it turned out he's living in Buffalo where we shot that film. I, I think Mitt Romney was way better as an actor than as a politician, personally. <laughs> I think he should have stuck with his acting career. Uh, he, had, he, had, he also appeared in a film called Hangman, and uh, he was in a Tim Kincaid movie. Was it Bad Girls Dormitory? I think it was Bad Girls Dormitory. So when I, when I got his resume, I saw him as being sort of the very, 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 very low-end Peter Cushing that was available to me, the guy who had done these other films. And the other woman that went on to be in Slime City was uh, an, an older actress named Jane Doniger Rybell, who plays the mother of one of the victims who has a scene with Dick. And she just sits there nodding as he talks about what happened to his daughter. Yeah, I thought he was he was extra creepy in this movie as, as a priest. Uh, I mean, he... He he reminds me of when I was when I went to school at RIT. We had uh, an actor's file that the students could go through, you know, with people's pictures, and there were always a lot of, um, you know, older thirties to middle aged uh, theater actors who would sort of have his look, you know, that sort of little bit of newscaster hair. And he's got a little Peter Cushing going on, but it's just, uh, it looks good on screen. And so we would just have files full of them and you would see them in everybody's student film they would get. And they were always the most. And, and also when you're 19 years old, having access to people who aren't 19 or 20 years old is, is often a problem. So they, they would get a lot of work in, in student films. And he just reminded me of, of one of those people, you, people you know probably like one of the more disciplined per- people on set and stuff because he's a little older and 
Yeah, I know what you're talking about, about uh, casting the wrong age actors. Um, I produced a film called Snow Shark that was based on a short film in which the director, when he did the short film, he had like his 15-year-old brother play a sheriff with a mustache. Uh, but in New York mm -hmm. City, it's different because if, you're, if you have the good sense to put an ad at backstage, you get deluged with headshots. I got, I got right. 2,000 headshots for Slime City. I mean, I, I could have gone with any number of uh, older people. True, younger people tend to be the most willing to take a chance on, uh, you know, what could turn out to be a piece of crap or never even be finished. Um, just to show you another way that that connections spread out, I think the very first character that you see in this film is a security guard at the sanitarium. Yeah. And uh, that's a man named Pete Jones, who was the security guard at Cinema One. I assume they cast him because he had a uniform. Right. A very nice guy who then went on to produce a movie called Flesh Eating Mothers. I have seen Flesh Eating Mothers. Which was written and directed by Jim Martin, who's one of the kids in uh, in uh, Splatter U. He's a tall guy with uh, curly hair who looks a lot like uh, that actor who's in uh, How I Met Your Mother and Knocked Up, and he's on Freaks and Geeks, that really tall Seth guy. Rogen? Yeah, uh, no, no, the tall, skinny one. Tall, skinny one. He directed the movie with Kristen Bell, Breaking Up with Sarah, whatever. Oh, 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 uh, Jason Siegel. Right. He looks a lot like him. And he went on to write I Was a Teenage Zombie and be in it. And then he wrote and directed and Pete produced this movie, Flesh Eating Mothers. So that's another one of these 16 millimeter, no budget movies that sort of tie into each other. <laughs> so for me, see, when I watch a movie like this, it's a home movie. I just see yes. so many people that I know who look the way I remember them. I know a lot of them on Facebook, and once in a while they'll post a picture or talk about their weight gain, which of course I've done as well. But in my mind, they look like this, like I see them in these films. Yeah, and this this was shot on 16 millimeter. I... What was it? <laughs> it wasn't lit very well, and it was, uh, you know, a fairly, I'm assuming a fairly cheap blow up. It's very grainy. Yeah. They yeah. had, uh, there was, there was, uh, and it's weird, and I wondered why they left it in because it was it really had nothing it didn't really show anything story-wise but there's you know one shot that's just blown out blue purple in the very beginning of like just sort of one the establishing shots of the school and i was just like oh that wasn't the the greatest shot there and it's the only one in the movie that's that's really off like that but then I, as i was thinking about it i'm like they really didn't need to pop that in there at all <laughs> well i imagine that when you have an hour-long movie and yeah. you shoot 13 minutes of footage it was 65 minutes and you still only have a 78 minute movie you're reluctant to cut anything yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but the shot you described does remind me one thing i noticed watching this is that there are there are very few wide shots in this film you know wide shots that really establish yeah. the school. We mm -hmm. see kids uh, frequently on like sort of a grassy hill, but they're, they're still never wide enough to give us a sense of the space. So that when you cut from these tight establishing shots into those same dull hallways over and over, it's I thought it was the same hall, I'll be honest, I thought it was the same hallway for a while. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, but you, you just feel, it's like they didn't make the effort 
which they could very easily have done to open it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it would have added a few 30 or 40 seconds to the movie, too. Could have. <laughs> <At least. laughs> The, the, the thing about this is I don't know if I, unless something like this, you know, I mean, besides what I said when I first came out about it being not that great of a movie, the, the thing about movies like this is the, the only crime they can really commit for me now is being boring. And, you know, if, so if the, this goes by, it's a short movie, so it goes by really yeah. fast, but I was never just sort of like, okay move it along move it along and even the, the the awfulness of it can be what keeps you flowing through it and just tearing and and seeing little things like uh the seaberg jukebox in the yeah. in the diner and then which made me think in the 80s did kids really sort of like sock hop dance in the in diners when you know they were off from class i don't i don't seem to remember that being sort of a thing and i i love little things like that in the movie it's like okay here's here's what goes on in the diner everybody like rockabilly dances to the to the jukebox <laughs> well you generously call it a diner but it's, <laughs> it's clearly a basement as we see when one character goes yeah. out goes out a door <laughs> yeah <laughs> basement i mean in, in film school basements we would we would have never survived without basements yeah, I use basements plenty as well. It's it's tough though when you try and make a house look like a a restaurant or a diner. Mm-hmm. And we'll say John Michaels was was involved in those reshoots. He he learned his lesson because when we did Teenage Zombie, we did get a '50s style diner to shoot all the diner scenes in. There is a real diner out from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And, and and shooting in basements, maybe that's what kept him. Maybe that's they just got in the habit of having to do tight shots <laughs> to not give away. <laughs> where you were well in my mind i try to separate what i think was the original film from what i think were the reshoots because i know that when you do reshoots you tend to say okay we have 15 pages let's do it in two days how we how can we do this simply whereas in the main body of the shoot you actually have these different locations you have the apartment her apartment uh her boyfriend's apartment that he sneaks into or her apartment it's like a a tiny room but his is decent uh, you know, there's some sense that yeah, some that, was put that into dorm this. room that uh, right. what's his name is cheating on his girlfriend with, which didn't, did not look like that, but the dorm right. room I had. <laughs> right. I was bored the second time we came to George and his friends hanging out in the stairway smoking pot. See, got that to me. The stairway ones. Those are those are reshoots, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that one was obviously shot, you know, you, you could tell when it came up the second time, I'm like, oh, okay, though, that here here's, you know, the the second part of that day's shooting. They just did, they did all the, the, the camera setup was exactly the same. They just like, went, yeah, basically you know, filmed the same up. sequence twice. Right. I mean, it's a common way to do things. I've done it myself many times as well. I'm not knocking yeah. it. Oh, no. In terms, that felt like real filler, whereas some of the scenes maybe didn't. You know, most of the humor is in the reshoot scenes, unless it's in a classroom. And I don't want to really say that those scenes were funny, the jokes that the students were making in the classroom and interacting with the, uh, the main teacher. But, hey, they did get, you know, got a theatrical release. 
Uh, I don't know where else it played, but it was in Times Square. It was probably on 42nd Street as well. Vestron did pick it up, so it got a major U.S. release. And then it, you know, disappeared, and Troma picked it up. So it, now it's it available. Also, I think it, it has the kind of poster we don't get anymore. Definitely. Um, and that, that actress is Elizabeth Kittane on the poster, who does not appear in the picture. Which is common. This is just like, this is the... This kind of movie it, during that time period was perfect for the, I mean, you know, the the small, any town video shops, but like in my small town video shop, you had the horror section. And if you liked horror movies, you just basically had to get whatever was, you know, you just worked your way through everything that came in. So anything that you could get to fill those, those spots was getting, you know, watched. I mean, I I didn't see this per, this particular one didn't make it to my video store, but you know a lot of movies like it did, <laughs> and we watched them all because that's all we had to do. There are some uh, bouncy songs in this that you barely hear. The credits say that it was a band called The Replacements, and back in Fredonia when I was in high school, sneaking into bars, I I did see a band called The Replacements and. I'm, in my mind, I've always said it's the same band all these years. I have no way of knowing if that's true or not. But I have when a rep- I saw the film, that got me really excited to see their I, name in the credits. They, they were a very drunken. I, I saw the replacements in 1988, and I was dating this girl who was a photographer, and uh, the lead singer w- was uh, infatuated with it. She took a bunch of pictures of him and sent them to him. And he would drunkenly call her at all hours in the night, and she would make me talk to him. And she'd be like, "Here, talk to my boyfriend." So I would talk to the lead singer from from uh, the rep- and he would talk to me for like a half a- an hour, like slurring his words, and then just sort of go away. The band I'm thinking of, we would actually go out, make a point of going out to see them whenever came to town, and their shtick, which would have been in '81, maybe '82 when I saw them, was. The three guys were shirtless and had duct tape under their armpits. Uh, it could be the same band. The the band I saw would would they had really good songs that they'd written themselves. But if you caught them on a good night, they'd be really drunk and would just do <laughs> cover songs off the top of their heads. Yeah. And and they were I could totally see the shirtless thing being <laughs> part of their shtick. By the time I saw them, whatever shtick they had, it probably advanced, and whatever pro- they they broke up a while after that, and I have a feeling it had to do with alcohol and liver problems. <laughs> and not splatter you? <laughs> no. That well, I, I I can't wait to get to Slime City to sort of compare some of the 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 things done in Slime City and Splatter University. In a what, in a sort yeah, of similar works. low budget way that worked out yeah. a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> and slime and sound and music is one of the big things. Splatter University is an inept. It's a competently directed, but I mean that that script is inept. Yeah, and that's what happens when you when you have three screenwriters and you have those kind of reshoots. Um, yeah. Another guy who was kind of involved with this, who worked at Cinema One, was Richard Cunningham, who's a uh, tall with red hair mm-hmm. he, he's credited as the co-screenwriter he appears as a student he did the sound 
And I worked with him at Cinema One, and he went on to play a semi-regular on Hill Street Blues. So he kind of went on for a little while to do something. He had been talking about a film called Bikers from Hell that I really wanted to see, but he never wrote the script. <laughs> it was just one of those things he often talked about. Um, I have no idea who who wrote what other than John Michaels being in on the, uh, the reshoots. Right. A movie called Bikers from Hell seems like it would almost have to exist. It's it's yes. almost like that 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 God statement of just like if <laughs> if the movie Bikers from Hell doesn't exist, you know, somebody would have to create it because it just seems like a natural. Well, it's been in my it stayed in my head all these years later. I mean, 30, 30 odd years later, 33, 35 years. Yeah, 35 the title years. is the pitch. <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder if. Uh, Cosm- the Cosmo- Panos Cosmatos had heard of, the, of this script and when he was working on Mandy. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I haven't seen Mandy yet, but I that does sound like a bike uh, would pretty much fit a bikers from hell. I've not seen Mandy, but didn't di- didn't Nicolas Cage play Ghost Rider as well? Yeah, yes he did. Uh, yeah. And yeah, I've 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 got I'm, I can't wait to see Mandy. I've got wildly mixed reviews. Greg <laughs> well, and my mutual friend Des has a copy of Mandy for me and on Blu-ray, so that's getting seen immediately upon re- receipt. <laughs> I'm waiting uh, to be in the right circumstances to watch it. Right, correct. Yes, it's tough. That's... It's tough for me uh, having a thirteen-year-old daughter. I tend to watch these films really late at night, and something that weird, I may not be able to concentrate on the way I'd like to. So, um, but this is this is an example. Uh, you know, I've been showing you some of the best, Chris. You know, some of my favorites. But this is an example of the average everyday grindhouse movie guys get together put money to put money in a pot uh, make a movie that capitalizes on a trend and puts and find a distributor because back in the 80s Greg could probably uh, confirm this for me there were loads of distributors in Times Square yeah yeah Alex Beck was situated there he's the guy who had the foreign rights to slime city and he brought over Godzilla and he Alex was funny because he uh, he import he bought Friday the 13th when Paramount thought it was a dog and then Paramount changed their mind and said we want it back he said okay it'll cost you a million so he made a fortune selling Friday the 13th back to Paramount films <laughs> but you would buy the annual AFM issue of Variety which was it was like a poster-sized book, an inch and a half to two inches thick, and it was just poster after poster after poster of movies that were being pre-sold to foreign territories. Uh, Chud, the, all the Charles Band films. I mean, anyone who bought the variety saw the Empire Pictures films posters two years before the film was even made. <laughs> so, Chris, would you recommend people watch Splatter University? <sighs> <laughs> it depends on the context of watching. I I know people that I could recommend it to. Yeah. And I would and I'm talking about the people over at the Horror Vault podcast. And I would bet two out of three of them probably have seen it mm-hmm. because they they 
I don't know how they do it. They live in some sort of time warp, but they see they've seen everything. I would recommend it to them because they could they could the you see the thing about this is like um when um Planet Terror came out right and was sort of like here's a modern grindhouse movie and what it really was was like all the all the steak and sizzle right you know combined into non-stop things so it was sort of like no grindhouse movie most yeah grindhouse horror movies are kind of boring and this one really wasn't a slog for me to get through it was entertaining in its badness so people who are of that mind yes i would recommend it you're ge- just general viewers like i want to sit down and watch a movie i would i would not it's uh, it's time i'll get to get to that yeah, like I said, Forbes Riley, I, I think Forbes Riley is genuinely good in the league. Um, but I don't think I would recommend it to any to, to anybody. <laughs> My recommendation is for people to watch I Was a Teenage Zombie, which has so many of these other these people in it, and then as a companion piece, watch Splatter You and see sort of how how they started before they went on up a level for I was a teenage zombie. My copy of Splatter University, mm. I unwrapped. <laughs> I've had it for twenty years. I unwrapped <laughs> <laughs> to rewatch it in preparation for this interview. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad we got. I, I'm glad we didn't. You know, um, we we contributed to the non waste of a DVD. Yeah, there you go. It's gone from decoration to entertainment. <laughs> so, since we have a great filmmaker with us today, I think we should take a break. Who? What? Where? <laughs> we have a great filmmaker and, of course, a great supervillain and the lovely and talented Virginia. We should take a break. And uh, let Virginia will take you to the special screening room so you can watch Slime City and then you can come back and uh, tell us what you thought. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, 
please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. And this is your Uncle Don saying good night. Good night, little kids. Good night. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards.